mean, that ball got out of here in a hurry. Just a bit outside. Do anything travels that far out of have a damn stewardess on it, don't you think? It's time for Powell at the Park. The one constant through all the years, Ray, has been baseball. Cubs, Sox, all your Chicago baseball news. Dynamite drop-in money. Here's your host, Kevin Powell. Hello, friends. Welcome into another edition of the Powell at the Park podcast. Kevin Powell here. Thank you for listening. Episode number 10. We're in the double digits on this week's episode. I talk with Andy Mazur, White Sox pregame host on WGN. Andy uh, has been uh, first year as the pregame host for the White Sox. Sounding great on the call. Um, we'll talk about the White Sox season. A whole bunch of stuff we'll cover. And uh, I also get uh, Andy's thoughts on, I meant to do this last week, but uh, poor planning on my part. So we're going to get to it th- this week. May 6th, 1998, Kerry Woods 20 strikeout game. Um, so Andy is going to give me his thoughts on that um, that moment. Kerry Wood, 20 strikeouts. Pretty incredible. One of the great games pitched of all time. So we'll talk to Andy Mazur. We'll also talk to Josh Friedman, CLTV Sports Feed host. Josh and Jared Payton host that Sunday through Thursday. Uh, been, they've been kind enough to have me on as a guest. So uh, Josh and Andy will talk Cubs, we'll talk White Sox. But before that, we'll start with the rundown. All right, I kind of want to start with some White Sox-heavy stuff. The best news this week, by far, the best news, Danny Farquhar, White Sox reliever, uh, released from the hospital after 16, 17 days at Rush and uh, three surgeries. It's it's pretty much a miracle. You got to give a lot of credit to the White Sox medical team, the training staff. You know, I guess the the whole silver lining of this whole thing is the fact that Farquhar did suffer the brain hemorrhage in the dugout, so he was right there, right in front of Herm Schneider and the whole White Sox medical crew, and they were able to rush him over to rush. It sounds like everything is going about as as well as it as it can. Um, the day after Farquhar was released from rush. He shows up and and surprises his teammates at Guaranteed Rate Field. Spends about an hour there talking to teammates, coaches. Ricky Renteria, here's teammate Nate Jones. Uh, You know, when you're in there, you're always uh, setting goals. And uh, that for Danny didn't change. He had a goal of getting discharged uh, yesterday. And uh, he had a goal of coming in today. And uh, Lexi tried to, you know, not necessarily pump the brakes, but just you know, let's take one step at a time, type of thing. But uh, it was awesome. It's uh, it was awesome for us that he achieved his goals. And here's what manager Ricky Renteria had to say. I think everybody was excited. You know, he came in. Um, all the guys came in. All the coaches saw him. Uh, we talked for a little while. Uh, normal clowning around. You know, uh, he was. Uh, for us, I mean, thinking about the whole situation, he looked really, really good, and we were happy to see him. I know his wife Lexi was in there with him, and um, he just, you know, just wanted to say hello to everybody and let everybody see him, and uh, he was pretty happy. So great news there. Um, obviously, is it's still a long road of recovery, but it was it was pretty it was pretty surprising to read that release from the White Sox earlier in the week. From you know, Danny's neurosurgeon says he does expect Farquhar to to pitch again. Uh, or at least be on the mound again at some point. Not this year. He's still got a long road ahead of him, but uh, not completely ruling that out. So if your neurosurgeon's telling you there's there's an opportunity there down the road, you got to figure the the long term projection for Farquhar um, just in everyday life. Forget baseball. Looks pretty good. So very happy for Farquhar and the White Sox there. Also, we did get some news on um, on former first round pick Jake Berger from last year. Tore his Achilles tendon 
during spring training. Injuries have not been kind to the White Sox so far in this early phase of the rebuild. Okada's on the DL. Uh, we saw Mike Rodolfo have some issues. Luis Robert, Elo Jimenez have all had little things here and there. Berger's injury, the most significant. Torn Achilles. And then we get word from the White Sox general manager, Rick Hahn, that Berger happened to re-tear the Achilles tendon. Unfortunately, Jake Berger, while at his home in Arizona last week, uh, retore his Achilles tendon. Uh, as a result, yesterday uh, he had what is called a repair revision of the tendon. Uh, also had a, some graft tissue attached to facilitate the healing. And uh, unfortunately for Jake, we are now back to square one. Uh, the prognosis remains positive. Once this is fully healed, uh, we expect him to have no restrictions in the future with regards to his baseball career. But as was the case after the first repair, uh, the clock is now at 12 months once again. All right, our first guest on the Powell at the Park podcast, Week 10, Andy Mazur, White Sox pregame host on WGM. We cover a large range of things involving the Sox, and I get his thoughts on Kerry Wood's 20 strikeout game. We're now joined by White Sox pregame host, Andy Mazur. Andy, how you doing today? KP, doing well. How are you today? I'm great. I'm great. Andy, of course, on every single White Sox call here on WGN Radio doing the pregame. You guys sounded great. I know you, Carm, Hoag, Zaz, having some fun. You know, it's uh, it's baseball, so yeah, we're having a blast. Uh, it's it's a it's a good thing that the, the microphones aren't on in our little <laughs> pregame postgame booth because our discussions range from oh, from baseball to restaurants to you know other things. So we uh, we like to have a little little variety in our conversations. You've walked in on a couple of those. So yeah, I like to time. I like to pop in from the press box, get out of the press box now and again, and come bother you guys. And uh, yeah, you guys always seem to be having fun down there. Yeah, I mean we do. I mean it's a, it's a good group. Uh, obviously, everybody gets along, and uh, you know it, it can get a little crazy uh, through the through the length of a baseball season. But you know that, that's why you got to keep it loose. You have to kind of keep it fun. And yeah, I kind of sound like Tim Anderson, don't I? Got to get going with the clubhouse. You just got to keep things fun, no matter what's going on. You know, I'm a bit envious of you guys because every game there's a um, uh, a waitress uh, who comes around and takes your order of food. And uh, what's what's become your go-to order, Andy? Because every time I go in there, I check out that menu. I've, I've been able to order a couple things, but I know you guys do that every day. Do you have a go-to? I know there's like a meatball sandwich on there. There's beggar's pizza. What are you working with yeah. these days? Well, I've tried a little bit of everything. Uh, Edith, Edith is our waitress, nice uh, nice lady. She comes in and takes good care of us. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we, we're aware of a couple of things that aren't on the menu but are available every day to us, and that's a turkey burger and an Italian beef. Uh, I would say the beef sandwich has become somewhat of a go-to. Mm-hmm. Um, I know Hogue is a big fan of the buffalo chicken empanadas. Those are good. And I had those before yeah. the season. Those are real good. Yeah, he, he's a big fan of those. Uh, Carm, you know, I really he kind of varies between the, uh, the that spicy chicken ranch sandwich, <laughs> and I think he had a beef sandwich the other day. Dave Zaslowski is. Uh, Italian sausage a couple times, and then he and I like the uh, the jumbo dog too, which is which is charred to perfection. Yeah, I think Zaz is uh, he's the only one I've noticed to bring an actual lunch from home uh, to avoid bubble yeah. ballpark food. So that's a savvy move by, that. by Zaz. He does that from time to time. All right, let's talk some baseball. Uh, some great news on Danny Farquhar, Andy, uh, and I'm sure you've probably gotten a chance to know him leading up to this season. But some really encouraging news there. He's back home resting with family. Yeah, and that's, uh, that's about as good as you can get uh, as far as the news was concerned. Yeah, they, they said he's not going to be medically cleared to pitch this year, but then there was that dot, 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 but 
he should be able to pitch again, which is exactly yeah. what uh, what you want to hear. What a scary situation. I mean, you think about it. It was uh, it was about three weeks ago, and uh, just kind of collapsing in the dugout. And thank goodness he was sitting next to Herm Schneider, the trainer, who uh, who had a pretty good idea of what he was working with just by the symptoms. And credit to the EMTs for getting there quickly and getting him uh, stabilized into the hospital and the doctors over at Rush and, and everything like that because. You know, it's not only uh, Farquhar himself is just a great guy, but you talk to anybody in that clubhouse, you talk to anybody throughout several clubhouses that uh, he touched and played for, and everybody to a man was just rooting for him. They had his uh, his jersey up in the dugout when the when the Mariners were in town, uh, when you know the, the rest of the Rays series, and like, the guys were bringing it out to the uh, to the bullpen here at, at Guaranteed Rate Field. So uh, it's just it's, it's it's about as good a news as you can ask for, and you just kind of hope that he just continues to recover quickly. Yeah, it was such a scary thing. I remember I was up in the press box, and you can kind of see into the Sox dugout, and you couldn't make out exactly what was happening, but it just looked like, um, I don't want to say chaos, because the Sox had the situation at least as about as good under control as you can, considering, as you mentioned, Herm was there and the, and the training staff, but it was you could just sense something wasn't right when you were looking down at the dugout. So, yeah, about as good as news as, as we could have gotten on Danny Farquhar. Um, of course, wishing him the best, and uh, the White Sox putting out a statement thanking fans for 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 letters and tweets and texts like that. So uh, well done, Sox fan uh, nation on that. Um, so best of luck to Daniel. We'll keep everybody posted on that. Uh, the more we hear, um, okay. Let's talk about some of the starting pitchers here, Andy. Specifically, the three guys that we all believe can be contributors to a championship team in a year, two years, three years down the road, and that's Giolito, Lopez, and Fulmer. Um, for me, Giolito's best outing of the year was probably his last one in St. Louis. I know he ended up giving up a few earned runs after some late uh, hits in that game, but he was pretty spectacular. What specifically, I guess for all three of these guys, are you looking at? Is, is it limited walks? Is it swing and miss type stuff? Is it Giolito and Lopez developing that slider we've heard about? When, they, when these three go out there, what are you looking for that says, okay, I'm seeing individual growth with these guys? Well, I can I can put a blanket over the three of them for one thing that I know that a lot of pitching coaches will look for, and that is to be able to command the fastball. It sounds simple, it sounds stupid, but you can't pitch your secondary pitches unless you have a fastball. Then you establish your fastball and able to it would command it to both sides of the plate. Um, so that that's that's first thing. Uh, when you look at uh, guys uh, in order here, if you, you look at Giolito, I mean he's got swing and miss stuff. I mean it's just it's just that good, and you know he's been getting a little more confident uh, in the secondary pitches as well. And I thought it was a great boost for him, even though it didn't work out well uh, because he ended up giving up a home run. But uh, Ricky Renteria went out to the mound and you know let him in, left him in, and uh, he was he had to learn how to get out of those situations. And I think he'll take that into his uh, his next start. So you know when you look for that, you look for individual growth on his part for for that, and just being able to to see what he can build off of. You know, Carson Fulmer's been a little up and down. He had two really good ones, and he had a kind of a clunker the other night. But uh, if you really look at it, toward the end of that outing, before he was removed in the fourth inning, he started to command the fastball a little bit more, and he was starting to get a little stronger, I thought. Um, but, you know, kind of opposite of uh, what Renteria did with Giolito, you want a kid leaving with a, with a sense of, okay, all right, I think I figured out what was wrong. But, yeah, you've already thrown a few pitches, so let's, let's, just, let's uh, let you watch the rest of the game. And kind of build from there, you know. Ronaldo Lopez, this guy could be the best. Of, it could be the best of all of them. I mean, he's got. The, I think he's got the best stuff out of all of them. He's just got no run support whatsoever. He's the Jose Quintana of this year's staff, uh, getting just a little over two runs a game, 
And uh, there was one little thing that I saw of him in that, in that start that he made at Tarantino Ray Field. He, he kind of came unglued a little bit. He got a lot of his emotions to get him uh, get the best of him a little bit. But again, Renteria letting him work himself out of it, giving him just just enough rope. And uh, I see good things for all three of these guys. It's going to be an inconsistent ride here. Yeah. Uh, so if anybody everybody's thinking that they're going to turn it on all of a sudden and they're going to be lights out for the for every outing that they have this season, uh, you're not you're not understanding what's going on here yet. Yeah, positives and negatives we've seen from from all these guys. I thought Lopez. I know he did some th- show some emotion in that last start against the Twins, and he went six and two thirds, gave up four runs, four uh, four earned runs, but no strikeouts uh, through eighty three pitches. But there was a moment in that game, I believe it was the you know third, fourth, or fifth inning, where it looked like it was like okay, these are going to be one of those games we've seen from Giolito, we've seen from Fulmer, where they kind of have these blow up innings and they give up a lot of runs, and then they get the early hook. But he battled through that and he pitched all the way into the seventh. I thought that was. I thought that was really impressive, despite maybe not having his best stuff. You look at all his starts, he's pitched through at least the fifth inning, where Giolito and Fulmer have kind of had these fluctuating starts where it's been, it's been, they've shown flashes of greatness, but then they can't command the ball. So Lopez, you know, I, I, I think, I do think Giolito may have some better stuff than him, but he's, he's been the most steady. And I think that's for a guy his age, that's, that's encouraging stuff. And think about this. Think about the, what, what the Washington Nationals thought of both Lopez and Giolito. They didn't even see Giolito as a, as a number two or three. They saw him as a four or five, maybe. They saw Lopez as a bullpen guy, a long, a long guy out of the bullpen, which is why they were both available in the Adam Eaton trade. So I think a lot of the, I think both these guys have a little something to prove as well. Mm-hmm. And, and the one other thing I wanted to mention about the, the three starters that uh, we're talking about here is they're having the benefit of throwing to Wellington Castillo. Who has developed a nice reputation for being a good, a good uh, receiver, a good caller of the game, and he's got that personality. He's got the disposition to kind of help these guys along. He's an easygoing kind of guy, but yeah, he's fiery on the field. But I think when he's having these conversations with uh, with the guys uh, in the dugout in the clubhouse, it's it's one of like big brother to little brother. And they also have James Shields to lean on in that clubhouse as well because. Uh, I remember asking James Shields this earlier in the year. I said, "You know, do you go to them, or did you wait wait for them to come to you? Uh, whether it be you know for advice or uh, you know certain pitch selections and things of that nature." He said, "Generally, I let them come to me unless I see something really egregious, and then maybe I need to go over there and let them know that hey, that's not how you do it, or here, try it this way." So I think they've they've got a lot of uh, a lot of leadership around them in the clubhouse. Don Cooper, one of the best pitching coaches in baseball. And uh, a very positive manager in Ricky Renteria, too. Yeah, I realize there's some frustration from White Sox fans towards Shields. Not necessarily anything personal, but you know they they traded for him a couple years ago, and he's he hasn't really been what everybody had hoped he would be. Plus, the guy they they dealt away has turned into one of the game's top prospects in Fernando yeah. Tatis Jr. But I think like this year specifically. Maybe not so much last year, but definitely this year. Like you just said, with these younger guys, he has turned into that veteran leader that that the guys can lean on. So I ask you this: Shields is coming off a game in which he took a no hitter into the seventh. He's coming off a couple of of quality starts. What do you think they do with Shields? Do you think they do keep him just to be around these young guys? Considering, okay, if they if they do even find a suitor for him. When it comes to the trade deadline, you're probably going to get minimal, maybe just you know, um, uh, um, some sort of prospect. Obviously, not anywhere near a top prospect or a high ranked prospect or anything like that. So, does that does it outweigh it to just like I guess is there more value just keeping him because of the the, the positive influence he does have on these younger guys rather than trying to trade him at the deadline? 
Yeah, I don't think they're going to get many suitors, to be honest with you. I don't think he's high on anybody's uh, list of, you know, being one pitcher away for a contending team to, to go ahead and deal for at the, at the trade deadline. I mean, there's, there's a couple of schools of thought about the trade deadline versus uh, offseason. You know, trade deadline, you're only targeting a few teams, but then your, your reward is pretty big because generally the team is very willing to overpay for uh, instant gratification. Uh, you go into the offseason and you can open it up to all the teams. You may not get as big a haul, but you know, there's, there's varying degrees of that. But, uh, you know, as far as Shields is concerned, I just don't think he's going to be, I don't think he's going to be dealt. Um, I think it's, at that point of the season, you're already halfway invested into the money. Um, and I, I think if, for, if, it's, if it's a situation of keeping him for the money you're already paying him or trading him for, you know, a class A prospect that may never amount to anything, I mean, I, I would keep him. I think, I think that's the, the guy to hang, kind of hang on to. Now, there are going to be a couple of guys that are going to draw some interest. Yeah. And one of them plays first base. And uh, that's going to be an interesting decision if they get blown away for an offer for Jose Abreu, uh, understanding that he's got this relationship with Yohan Moncada and a lot of the Latin players, and he's become a big leader in that clubhouse. Yeah, that's that's another one, too, where I'm like, okay, well, first of all, I don't know how much they'd even get for him considering the way we've seen baseball as a whole um, prioritize positional players. I mean, we looked at free agency. Positional players weren't getting massive deals. So do you trade away a Brayu and get not as much as he's worth, or do you keep him around for, for the young guys? So that's, yeah, that's something that uh, yeah, Rick Hahn will have to consider. Now, in terms of the starting pitching, Rick Hahn has said that when they do bring up Michael Kopech, they do want him to, to be up for good. I mean, of course, unless he's struggling mightily, then they're going to send him down. But for the most part, they just want to bring him up. They don't want to do this up and down thing, which means they do have to clear a starting spot. Likely that could be Miguel Gonzalez's spot down the road, wherever they, he ends up. But um, I guess because this this has become sort of a mandatory question, Andy, for all the White Sox guests I've had, when do you think Kopech will be brought up? Yeah, I think it's sooner rather than later, um, especially if Gonzalez is going to be out for more time, which it sounds like he is. Uh, you know, Ricky Renteria was talking to us over the week over last weekend and uh, basically said that he had just started to throw on the side, which you know means. He's probably going to have to do that again. He's probably going to have to wait a couple of days before he goes down to a rehab assignment. He's going to have to wait four more days before his second start, you know, his third start. So, I mean, you're talking, you're talking weeks at this point. And if the kid's ready, I bring him up. I mean, he scuffled a little bit in his last start, but he's a cocky kid, but he's smart enough to realize that you can learn a lot from a bad outing. And I think he said it on our conference call last week that if you haven't learned something from, uh, from a bad outing, it's a wasted day. And I, I loved hearing that because I think that's just, uh, that's maturity beyond years. Uh, he is very, very aware of what's, uh, what's being said. And he is very, very aware of the doubters. And he kind of thinks that he's over ready. I mean, he's been ready to go. He wanted to break north with the team. Yeah. Um, I still think there's some things to work on, uh, especially when you get a guy that's hard thrower like that. Uh, fastball command again is the issue, especially inside, uh, onto left handers. She's, you know, that, that arm side is usually the easier one to, to throw to. Not that it's very simple, but it's the easier one of the two. Um, and I, I think pitch count is going to be something that he's going to have to watch out for because that kind of got him in mean, his last start. He only went three innings, and the pitch count mounted because he was walking everybody. He's got the stuff to get around it, though, which is, which is incredible to think about. But, uh, you know, you want to refine that. You really want to refine, um, you know, how you're getting through innings and how you're getting through outings. Getting quick outs rather than strikeouts, I think that uh, there's a lot of 
philosophies about, uh, you know, you'd rather get the quick out than the, than the glory stat of the strikeout. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's something he needs to work on, too. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I mean, obviously getting ahead is, is key for every at-bat, but specifically a guy like Kopech, and he said this, he goes, look, when I fall behind accounts, it means I can't work on my changeup. And that's the whole reason right. he's basically down there is developed that third pitch. And sure, he may fall behind and then blow away guys with, you know, his fastball slider and overpower some of these hitters, but it's not necessarily going to work long-term at the big league level. So who who knows? Maybe we'll see him at Wrigley for his debut. Andy, we got a cup. We got a Cubs. Our first Cubs Sox series coming up. That would be uh, that would be very interesting. That would be that would add to the already. That would uh, add some fireworks. That would add. Yeah, that would add some intrigue. If uh, yeah, that, that that could be fun stuff. So uh, we'll keep everybody posted there. By the way, uh, the twentieth anniversary. Were you at Wrigley for Kerry Woods, whether as a fan or working? Um, Twenty strikeout game. I was not. It was the year before I started working at WGN. Um, but if you remember the year that I started working there was 99, and, and Woody was on the DL the, basically the entire year. Mm-hmm. But he was hanging out with the team. So I got to know him pretty well during that time. And every May 6th, I would quiz him for the, in the pregame show. I would, we would have a standing date that I would interview him. But, uh, it would be you know something about what was going on at that point, And it would ultimately end with, all right, who was your catcher? Who was the umpire? Who got the only hit? Who played third? You know, <laughs> it's just like, and he was—he was incredibly uh, well versed on it. And I think that you know, in that moment, obviously, it, it became huge for a twenty-year-old kid to be to be striking out twenty batters. Yeah, in uh, his fifth major league start, I think it was kind of incredible. But uh, yeah, and you know, Woody—he uh, doesn't shy away from talking about it, and nor should he. It was probably one of the best games ever pitched. Yeah. What sticks out to you most from that game? Because I go back and I, we've seen countless highlights now, just from all the broadcasts. And he's got the twenty for twenty movie. It's just to me, it's just the stuff. It's like holy hell! How is and nobody now? I get why he struck out twenty people. It's some filthy stuff. But what sticks out to you most about that game and that outing? Yeah, there's a couple things. I mean, the, the, the Ricky Gutierrez quote unquote single to the left side where uh, Kevin Ory kind of laid it and let it into left field, though it ticked his glove, and I think there were a lot of people that wanted that to be an error, but it was so early in the game, you don't have any idea that, you know, this is going to be happening. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he was very matter-of-fact about it. He says, you know what, so if I'm going for a no-hitter, maybe I'm not striking out everybody, and we're not even talking about this. But mm-hmm. I would agree with the stuff. His, he was talking about his curveball always having depth. His curveball was, was devastating. From uh, It was a 12-6, to top-to-bottom curveball. He said, but that day he felt so good and relaxed with his slider that he had never seen his slider do what it was doing that day. And again, he was thrown to the backup catcher. He was thrown to Sandy Martinez that day. And uh, it was it was incredible just to watch these hitters. I mean, professional hitters, Hall of Fame hitters. Craig Biggio was in that lineup. Um, Jeff Bagwell was in that lineup. Moises Alou was in that lineup. Derek Bell was in that lineup. I mean, these are guys that are professional hitters that used to torment everybody in the National League Central. So I, I think it was just the domination for a kid that was, again, 20 years old, making his fifth Major League start that was just absolutely incredible. And the other thing I'll never forget, uh, I was working at a National Sports Network that was located here in town. We were watching it in the in our little bullpen area, and the game ends, and his hands were just absolutely shaking with the microphone, trying to keep the earpiece in his ear. And it was just it was amazing. Well, yeah, like you said, one of the best games ever pitched when you consider consider everything. So, um, pretty pretty great stuff there. That, he's Andy Mazur, White Sox pregame host here and before every game on WGN Radio. Andy, uh, thank you for your time. Really appreciate it, man. You got it. Take care, KP. All right, Andy. 
Thank you to Andy Mazur. You can hear Andy before every White Sox game on WGN Radio. And up next, Josh Friedman. Uh, I've been on his show on CLTV Sports Feed a couple times and figured, hey, why not uh, get him on the podcast? He's kind enough to join us on the pod. We're now joined by Josh Friedman from WGN. He's a host of Sports Feed along with Jared Payton. You can see that on CLTV 6 to 7 uh, Sunday through Thursday. Josh has been kind enough to have me on the show a few times, so I figured why not have him on the podcast? Josh, thanks for jumping on. I appreciate it, man. Yeah, always fun to have you on the TV side, but uh, this way we get to talk with no makeup, at least uh, for me and Jared, so that's always fun, too. <laughs> there we go. Um, beautiful. Well, I wanted to get you on just to talk about a whole bunch of things. I know you, you follow the Cubs closely, but you follow uh, both teams in town, so we may touch on a little socks, but um, I guess the start to this Cubs season, and I, I guess we can start with you, Darvish. It's basically gone about as as poorly as as you could draw up, it's his numbers aren't good. Now he's on the DL. Um, you know, some people were kind of like getting on his case a little bit about going on the DL for the flu, and I'm like, well, why not? I mean, you're only going to miss one start. It's retroactive to May fourth. Yeah. Um, I, I guess just your thoughts on Darvish as a whole. Is it time for for Cub fans to be panicking about the 126 million dollar man? <laughs> we know uh, Cubs fans love to panic about anything, uh, right? It's, you know, the guy could have uh, you know one bad uh, start, and people were were ready to uh, put him, you know, uh, in the garbage can. But no, honestly, I uh, I'm not overly concerned with Darvish. It's obviously not the start you wanted to get out of a guy you paid 126 million dollars. But all you have to do is look at what happens three years ago. Cubs signed John Lester to a big $155 million contract. And what happened? Lester was terrible out of the gate. He had an awful April, and the Cubs weren't ready to win then. So we all thought, all right, it's not a huge deal. Cubs are in that window clearly now, and it turned out that 2015 season, the Cubs were advanced in their timeline more than anybody thought, winning 97 games and making it to the NLCS. But Lester was not good in April, was great in May, and ended up kind of having a seesaw season where he was good and bad um, through each and every month. So to say Darvish is a bust this early is obviously way overstated. There are some concerns, though, with the walks, and he has never been a guy who had a walk rate close to where it is now. I think it's uh, close to five or over five per nine innings that he is averaging, and that's why you see the ERA and the whip being inflated and he's still tough to hit. He's striking out 10, 11 guys per nine innings. He's always going to have that nasty arsenal. So as long as the pitches look good, the velocity is there, um, then I think it's a combination of him getting acclimated to a new city, a new team. The expectations are there, and kind of finding his way a little bit. He's working with a brand-new catcher, Wilson Contreras, that he's not used to. He's got a new pitching coach, Jim Hickey. Um, you can point to some maybe excuse-making early on with, in Miami, it was the humidity, and then in uh, against Atlanta at Wrigley, it was the balk that kind of threw him off in the fifth inning, and then the weather wasn't great. So I think that's definitely part of it, but those are more excuses than anything. But for people to be on this case for getting sick is the dumbest thing ever. Like you said, Kevin, <laughs> it is retroactive to a date that only forces him to miss one start. So what do you want him to do? pitch through being sick and then have a terrible start again for the Cubs and then blame it on being sick afterwards and people getting upset? No, you, you, you take advantage of the short DL and you make a move. And yeah, I put the Cubs in a little bit of a bind yesterday with Jet Hosea 
and they kind of bailed him out with the bullpen. But uh, Darvish going forward, I got to think that you're going to start getting more of the results that the Cubs paid for, and hopefully sooner rather than later. Josh, you, you you brought up the catcher situation, and I know some people have tossed the idea around of bringing Jimenez up to be sort of Darvish's personal catcher, uh, kind of mm-hmm. similar to the Ross Lester connection that we saw for a couple years here in Chicago. So your, your thoughts on that? Not a bad idea at all. Uh, if it's going to make him more comfortable, then I got to think the Cubs would try anything to to do to do exactly that. And and if that's what's been bothering Darvish here, just getting acclimated to the new team and city, then if he continues to struggle, I think the Cubs will make that move. The only problem is Victor Caratini's been really good. Um, you know, Joe even said the other day, why don't we talk more about this kid? Caratini has had really good at bats, had a couple good uh, at bats yesterday. Um, obviously, made that play at home play where Derek Dietrich tried to run him over and just kind of stood his ground as well. Um, so Caratini is a good backup catcher. He's a good backup first baseman as well. So maybe the Cubs would employ the three-catcher mm-hmm. um, route, which they did when they had David Ross and Miguel Montero, and then when uh, Wilson Contreras was up as well. So they could go that route and have Caratini being a, being a swing first base backup if Rizzo needs a day off or um, – you know, be a third catcher. The only problem is Contreras is, is a guy who plays probably four out of every five games. Right? right. He's he's so he's so ver- so young and athletic behind the catcher uh, in the catcher position. Rather, what do you want to do? Maybe give him a day in the outfield. We know he can play there, but you have so many outfielders as it is. So it creates a log jam. But I think if it's something that you Darvish a if he wants that if he says to the Cubs he says to Joe Madden Theo and, and Jed hey maybe having Jimenez up with me, he worked well with me in Texas, is going to help solve some of my problems, then I think the Cubs have to listen to that because right now, Darvis's issues are, are a bigger problem than finding where Caratini is going to play or, or sorting out some of those pieces if you do have a third catcher come up. Speaking of Caratini, there was a play at the plate against the Marlins in Game 2 of their series earlier this week that sparked the benches clearing, uh, quote, brawl, and it ended with Chris Bryant tickling Starlin Castro. <laughs> I've never, you know, we see Marsh, Marshan lick a guy in hockey, and then we see uh, Chris Bryant tickle a guy during a benches clearing situation in baseball. I don't know what's next, but I've never seen a, t- <laughs> yeah, I've I've never never seen seen a tickle fest. Tickle fest. No, yeah. <laughs> I, 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 I don't know. What do you make of that? Where did that come from? Um, <laughs> I honestly have no idea. I think it's just they, you know, they tried to have some levity on the situation, and they saw their buddy Starlin Castro out there, and you know Chris Bryant. I think Anthony Rizzo was in that. Albert Amora uh, yeah. came out of the dugout as well. Um, he was in the fold, and they're all, you know, I think one of them gave a little. Uh, I don't know if I'm allowed to say it, but uh, we'll just say he grabbed. His uh, his pectoral and twisted it uh, as well uh, on, on Starlin Castro. Yep. Uh, you see yep. a couple of the guys that uh, were grouping off with him, and they're good buddies with Starlin. Look, right. you know Starlin was the, was the guy that a lot of the, his teammates really loved. He was he was one of the originals, right? Him and Anthony Rizzo were here um, going back to 2011, 2012, and those two guys were thought to be the cornerstones of the of the rebuild under Theo Epstein. It didn't work out for Starlin here, and. Got uh, got usurped by Hobby Baez and Edson Russell, and was uh, end up uh, you know someone you could trade, uh, which they did, and ended up getting 
Um, really nothing for it because right they, they ended up trading. I forget the pitcher's name that they got from New York. Uh, they ended up giving up uh, him back to back to the Yankees. But anyway, Starlin's a guy that the Cubs players still love, and they get to see him what once a year at Wrigley. Mm-hmm. So I think that was more than anything just trying to find a little levity in the situation. And Derek Dietrich, I don't know what he was doing running through. Uh, Victor Caratini there, obviously, the new rules of the plate, you can't do that. Mm-hmm. You can't uh, you can't barrel into the catcher there. Um, but he was like 30, he was out from like 30 feet, so he really had nowhere to go. Um, but I thought the situation was, was pretty great when they decided to, to take it out on Starlin by tickling him. You know, it seems like every day Cubs Twitter is on the edge of their seat waiting for the Cubs to tweet out the starting lineup. And if you look at the comment section just about every day, people are always going to be frustrated with, with Joe Madden. It's pretty incredible that a f- fan base can be so hard on a guy that helped bring the first World Series to this town for the Cubs in over 100 years. And I understand there are certain things, and I, I, I understand people can take exception with certain things Joe Madden does, maybe with the bullpen or particularly postseason decisions, but... It's tough to really like be all that upset with what Joe Madden does. I guess my question is because it seems like everybody has thoughts on the lineup and who should be where and who should be leading off. Do you, do you think Joe Madden does tinker too much with the lineup? So here's my thought on on the lineups. Does he tinker? Hundred percent. He he is a he is a tinkerer, but. Does he have a reason for every tinker? Yes. And he has a process and a method to this madness, so to speak. I also think the, the reaction, especially, especially on Twitter, and, and look, Twitter's a whole different issue. It's a, it's, it's a big ecosystem of, of people trying to feed on, on these, these, this negativity mm. and trying to make up things that really aren't as big of stories right. as they want to It could be a vocal but, minority for the most part, you know, being amplified yeah, but a little bit. I think bit. it's also, it goes into, and you know this, Kevin, the baseball season is, is a grind. It's 162 games. It's not like any other sport where you have a game pretty much every day. And what comes with that is a microscope that's way more focused on the minutia of the game. It's not like football when you only have 16 games. You know the starters are going to be the same every week except for injury. It's not like an NBA lineup where you have 82 games. You know who the starting five is for the most part going to be unless a guy's struggling and taking out. But in baseball, it's so different. You're starting eight position players and a different pitcher, and, you're, and it's, it's so much more a tactical game because there is another player specifically out there trying to get everyone out that you send on your lineup. Right. And it's not like other sports where you have to specifically line up your your order and which guys based on which way they hit, which way you know the the pitcher splits are, what's uh, the the weather condition, who's your who's your next uh, pitcher in the in the schedule, who where are you going, what's your off day? There's so much more that goes into it than just Joe saying, all right, I'm going to start Alberto Moore today, and uh, I'm going to feel like playing uh, Chris Bryant in right field today. Right. It's not like he just all of a sudden whips this out day up. He is planning this days, weeks in advance on his iPad. He's consulting with the Cubs, um, entire management core, with all the, all the stats and analytics guys, um, finding the most optimal situation. So if you get mad at a guy for trying to be optimizing right. his roster, then I think that's pretty lame, and I think that's that's bad form. It's not always going to work out, and that's where people get, I think, the wrong perception. You can't confuse the process with the outcome, right? Exactly. And and just because the outcome isn't always great, you can't just get mad at Joe Madden for that. And so mm-hmm. I think there's there's a lot of hand wringing over the lineups. I think most of it is not necessary. You got to find ways to get 
all these guys in in the lineup. And well, I think it's a good problem to have, right? Yeah, that, that's where I was going to go with this. I would say there's a lot of managers that are probably envious of Joe Madden. One of the reasons he does tinker is because he can play the matchups. That's the whole point mm-hmm. of it. They have so much versatility. They have guys that can play multiple positions. They have guys with a ton of upside. I think for Cub fans, what they hang on is that, you know, for as much as this team has accomplished, they are still so young. And a lot of these guys are still developing, even Baez and Russell and Almora. So I think a lot of Cub fans hang on that. Like, oh my God, you're not playing so-and-so every day. We need to develop him. He's a potential all-star, perennial all-star type guy. So I get that. But I would say it's more so the fact that Joe Madden can do that. He can make these 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 roster and, and, and lineup shuffling decisions because they have that luxury that they have guys that are versatile. They have guys that can play the outfield. They have guys that play the infield. So, you know, I, I agree with everything you said. I think I think for the most part it is it is fans um, hanging on each little decision a little bit too much. And I would just say um, trust Joe Madden in, in that regard. I, I do want to get your thoughts, Josh, before before you go. Um, the Kerry Woods strikeout game, the 20 strikeout game uh, was, was this week, uh, 20 years ago, May 6th. Um, your thoughts on that? What, do you, what sticks out to you most about that day and about that performance? Yeah, so not to age myself here, but uh, I was in the third grade <laughs> in 1998, um, and I remember exactly uh, where I was. I came home from school, and as I usually did, turned on the cup game on WGN and didn't know who Kerry Wood was at the time, you know, um, making his fifth major league start. And you, you immediately, when you're, you're watching the end of the game, because I think I picked it up, whatever, it was the seventh, eighth, ninth inning, whatever time you get home after school, and you're kind of like, wait. Even as a young kid, you're like, wait, how many strikeouts is, is, does he have? And then the announcers are talking about a, a record, and any time, you know, there's, there's a major league record on the line, even when you're, you're eight, nine years old, you start to perk up, right? And you're like, oh, that, that's got to be really important. And the way he made the Astros players look, that's what sticks out most. And to watch the highlights, this is an incredible Astros team. They won 102 games. They had Hall of Famers, Craig Biggio, Jeff Bagwell. They had the Killer Bees, Derek Bell. Um, they had an awesome, awesome team. And Kerry Wood, at 20 years old, made them look like a little league team. I mean, some of the movement on his curve and his slider, unbelievable to watch it back. And so that's what sticks out. The game score, never been done before, 105 game score. So arguably you can say it's the best pitch game of all time. And what, what irks me as well, and Dan Rohn had a great like seven-minute piece on WGN that aired last week um, talking to Kerry and talking to the, a lot of the announcers that were part of that game, uh, including Steve Stone. And uh, Jim Deschays was on the Astros side, actually, uh, during that game. Um, and Kerry was asked, was that an error on Kevin Ory at third base? He's like, no, it was a hit all day, never even thought about it. And if you look at it, Kevin Ory, I mean, if, if you're a Cubs fan, uh, you, you remember that name. It was never really anything at third base, but mm-hmm. he should have made that play. And who knows what it would have been like if that's a no-hitter right. um, and Kerry Wood has... A 20 strikeout no hitter for sure the best game ever pitched if that's the case um, but didn't turn out that way Kerry honestly he made a great point if, if it was a no hitter maybe never has 20 strikeouts because right. maybe he's too worried about uh, keeping that no hitter intact what I loved though as well last point was that Kerry had no idea what he was doing he had this adrenaline rush going after the game he's, he's hooked up to the, the WGN uh, IFB and talking to Steve Stone and they're kind of telling him basically did you have any idea, you know, the history you were making? He's like, I, I, no. Like, he had no idea how many strikeouts he had. He didn't know if he was close to a, a National League record, a Major League record. So the 
um, the oblivious state that he was in for that one afternoon is, is, is incredible because think about that case now. You, you would you definitely know where you, where you stood most likely because people are probably going to tell you uh, in the dugout or in the crowd, everybody's got a cell phone, they're tweeting about it, and they're, they're taking videos. It's, uh, you know, even 20 years ago, it's a totally different era. Um, so it's, it's for sure one of the highlights of my youth watching Cubs baseball. It was uh, an incredible performance we're never going to forget, and I'm sure we're going to relive it over and over again. He's Josh Fryman. Uh, you can watch his show, a sports feed, on CLTV Sunday through Thursday, 6 to 7, uh, again on CLTV. Josh, can't thank you enough for joining me. I really appreciate it, man. Appreciate it, Kevin. Thanks for having me on, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. That's going to do it for Week 10 of the Powell at the Park podcast. Thank you to Andy Mazur. Thank you to Josh Friedman. Please subscribe on iTunes and review and rate. You can also listen on Google Play, WGNRadio.com. Follow me at KPowell720 on Twitter. Thank you for listening, and uh, look forward to talking to you next week on the Powell at the Park podcast. Have a great day. Thanks. Thanks.